Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic UK. And today we're going to be looking back at Fulham's one-all draw at Preston, a poor performance and it felt like a poor result that might cost us our place at the top of the league. But fortunately, our rivals dropped points as well in the best circumstances possible, particularly on the South Coast, which means that Fulham are still top of the tree. And despite two draws in a difficult week for the Whites, all is still pretty stable in the promotion push. Here to discuss everything that happened at Deepdale yesterday, I've got Farrell Monk. Hello, Farrell. Hi, Sammy. Hello, everyone. He's only just made it back from Preston. It's Dan Cook. Hi, Sammy. And making his debut on Fulhamish today, we're delighted to have him. Chris Frank, a.k.a. Cottage Analytica on Twitter, so you might follow him already. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello, Sammy. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on the pod. No, pleasure, pleasure. Uh, we've got uh, two stat heads in uh, yourself and Dan and Farrell today to uh, to analyse the match, which is great. Um, Faz, uh, what were the best three word reviews that came in from Deepdale yesterday? As you might expect, there was a lot of uh, hand related uh, three word reviews. Uh, just to pick out a few of my favourite. Uh, Ted Mansour's caught Ched handed. Doyce Kirkland's Preston handed point. Um, no justice, no peace. That's at Rick, Rick Cardis there. Uh, officials giving hand jobs. Love that one. Uh, Stephen Sheldrake's also another Preston handed points. Cheeseboard FC's poorly handled game. DJ H's we miss VAR. Never thought we'd actually say that. And then we'll just finish on Cabana Rama. Love that name with Preston Supermare. Yeah, very, very good. I loved that one. Um, Dan, before we start analysing the game, I feel like we need to talk about the uh, the travel situation to Preston yesterday. You missed the first 20 minutes. You missed the goal. It was an absolute nightmare from what I heard, getting not just to Preston for the 12.30. You know, you might have already realised that that was going to be difficult and uh, there wasn't a lot of room for contingency. But even getting back from Preston as well, Storm Arwen causing chaos left, right and centre. Um, it sounded like a, a thoroughly miserable away day that properly tests your loyalty. Yeah, if, if everyone will indulge me for a one minute cathartic experience for me, it was a hell of a day. Um, turned up at Euston at quarter to eight for my 8.20 train. I was ready. Spotted Don Betts on the concourse. We were we were ready for a, a, a big day, big three points. Uh, the 8.20 was up on the board, delayed, delayed. Eventually it just disappeared off the departures board, which is when we worked out at about 8.40 that it wasn't going to happen. Hopped on the train to Liverpool um, to change at Crewe to then get up to Preston. Uh, spent 40 minutes on the platform at Crew, which was fun. Game kicked off while we just left Wigan. Um, so we weren't actually that close at that point still. 
we scored while I was in a cab from Preston Station to the ground. Uh, and then I didn't get home until quarter to nine in the evening. So it's, yeah, having spent five minutes freezing on Coventry train station platform, which I still have PTSD from, from uh, a few months ago. I mean, what was the problem coming back? No trains had been running. So our train was having to make up for the other trains that hadn't been running by stopping oh everywhere. Uh, and yeah, we had to change at Coventry because they decided our train was no longer going to Euston when we were halfway there. I mean, it was always going to be difficult. I think even if it had been three o'clock yesterday, it would have been a uh, a tough, tough assignment getting up to Preston. Uh, we had a decent crowd there as well. So um, respect to all of those that made it, especially in the circumstances. Um, Chris, let's have a look at the game then. Uh, not a classic from Fulham's standpoint by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we'll come on to the referee uh, display a little bit later. Uh, we were nearly back to full strength in terms of personnel on the pitch, but it did not feel like Fulham were back at full strength in terms of fitness yesterday. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. It certainly seemed like the neurovirus that's been going around the squad had a had a real impact. And I think if you look at the sort of overall structure of the game you'll see that you know we were pretty good for the first half an hour or so but after that it just felt like you know performances dropped off a cliff everyone stopped running it looked like we weren't competing for the first and second balls and really the game kind of transformed after that after that first half an hour and i think you've got to put that down to the to the fitness situation in the squad uh, Farrell, um, Peter in The Athletic um, wrote a piece today saying that Marcus Silva has squad depth he should probably start using it. And I can't agree more. It feels kind of mad that Marco's making so few changes in a triple game week that's already difficult enough. He spoke about how when Fulham play on Wednesday evening, the Saturday lunchtime, it's not enough preparation. Surely this is the moment to to, to delve deeper within your squad. Mawson's there, Onoma's there, Joe Bryan's there. And he seems a little bit reticent to use any of them. Domingos Kina, I mean, has just been um, sitting in the canteen, locked in a room at Motspur Park since he arrived from Watford. It feels like these are the moments, if you're not going to use your squad depth now, then when are you going to? Yeah, it's it's a definite point that we need to, that we need to talk about, especially since that the success at this level, we probably can owe a fair amount of... of of credit to previous managers of Slavisa and Scott Parker, who were actually pretty good at rotating. I mean, famously with with uh, Slavisa, especially in that first season, we we tended to rotate a lot of the wingers and and the person playing up front, whether it's Lucas Piazon or or Aluko. Uh, you remember Shea Ojo was was uh, rotated in and out, and it you know we used that to to great effect. Who can forget the Slav bingo and. Um, I think maybe this is where Marco Silva really needs to earn his earn his mustard, especially since that you know we've we've had a fantastic start to the season, and um, you know I think that's all credit to Marco Silva there. But obviously, it's a long season. We need to perform really, really well over forty six games, not just the first nineteen or twenty. And yes, perhaps we do need to see more of the squad rotation, the squad management. I mean, it's very, very tricky keep trying to keep twenty you know first team players uh, happy throughout it. Um, and credit to the two previous managers who've done that. Marco Silva now really needs to sort of get a grip and think, well, actually, if some of my 
if some of my players are aren't performing to the level expected, maybe it's time to to rotate a little bit. But obviously, trying to keep them motivated is going to be a lot of hard work as well. So let's see what happens in the in the next um, in the next games coming up because it's going to uh, famously there's lots of fixture congestion around the Christmas time. I would like to add, Sammy, that that I think it's a little bit of a case of damned if you do, damned if you don't, though, with Mar- with squad rotation of Marco Silva, because. If we think of the one time he has done a little bit of rotation for a league game, that was Coventry. Seri dropped out, Tosin dropped out. We saw what happened. And I'm not necessarily saying that he's lost trust uh, in any of those players, but it is also a case of think of the fan reaction when he does rotate and people tend to start screaming, where's so-and-so, where's Mitro, where's Kearney, where's Seri, where's Tosin? And so I don't, I think it's always sort of a grass is greener sort of thing. If we'd have gone out yesterday and we'd rotated a lot and we'd drawn one all, people would have been having a go at him for having rotated too much because it was a must win game for them. So I think there is a case of just, it, it's tricky for him because how do you drop Mitro if he's, if he's able to play? How do you drop Tosin? How do you drop Seri? It's tricky. I think the thing for me, though, is like, yeah, I understand that that Coventry game, his fingers got burnt because it was the one time he experimented with squad rotation and it didn't work. And we don't exactly know who in this squad has been fully affected by the norovirus. We've got some names, but we don't know if there's been any others that Marker hasn't mentioned. But we know that Harry Wilson, Harrison Reed, and Anthony Robinson have all had some elements of this. And all of them have started those three games and not really been given too much of a rest. And and in all those positions, there is a reasonably adequate understudy. Joe Bryan, in the case of Anthony Robinson, um, I guess in Harrison Reed's position, maybe there's a, it's a little bit threadbare about Nathaniel Chalabar, but at least Tyrese Francois is still um, knocking around. And then we, we've seen that Anthony Knockart is around as well uh, on the right wing. So I just feel like, yes, I appreciate he's had his fingers burnt, but this was definitely an opportunity where he could have used it. Anyway, um, Chris, let's come on to the goal. Nice to see Tim Ream back on the score sheet. First time since 2017 um, that Tim Ream got on the score sheet. I also enjoyed his tweet where he said that um, his son, every time that he plays football, asks him, are you going to score a goal today? Uh, and he always has to return and, uh, and disappoint his son but this time he didn't have to um tim didn't have the greatest game yesterday by his own admission but it, it was a nice moment and uh, another well-worked set piece from from fulham yeah and it was a really good goal um obviously fulham scoring a lot of goals from set pieces this year and i think it was a doy who won the free kick in the in the first place and really i think this goal is all about the the cross by seri it's so perfectly flighted into that gap between the uh, Preston defensive line, and the goalkeeper sort of curling away from the keeper. So he can't come and get it. And really Reams just got to attack the near post and it's a simple tap in. And um, yeah, you can see how much it meant to him. Although I think, as he said on Twitter, he didn't really know how to, how to celebrate it, but it was a, it was a great goal. Yeah, he did look a bit shocked, didn't he? Uh, we got a tweet here from TJ who said, we are now either Tosin or Tete away from fielding a competitive lineup of all outfield players with a goal this season. So you've got Mitro up top, Cabano, Carvalho and Wilson in midfield, Tom Kearney and Onoma, uh in defensive mid, then Robinson, Ream 
Uh, and then obviously you've got a doy in there as well who scored this season. So yeah, you just need either Tosin or Tete to score and you've got that uh, full outfield side with uh, with the goal this season. Thank you to TJ for, for that tweet. I think that's a that's a brilliant one on that. But I've I got a sort of comment. How come uh, Ivan Cavallero can't even make that squad? Because he's, <laughs> he's got two goals but and we're still looking for a player to fill out that team. But no, he doesn't make the cut. So if he's not making that team, I don't know what team he's he's getting in. I guess maybe because uh, the competition up top in the uh, we've scored a goal team is is quite high if you've got Cabano, Carvalho and Wilson. I guess TJ was trying to make an actual 11 out of it unless he stuck Cavalera right back, which uh, to be fair, he might do a job. You never know. Um, Farrell, obviously we got the goal, but then we started to fall apart pretty quickly after that. Chris alluded that really after half an hour, it looked like we were running on empty and we really were struggling to get a foothold in the game. And, and Preston just grew into it more and more and more, particularly in the second half. It felt like Fulham were just were, had set up base camp inside our own penalty area. It's quite hard to pinpoint um, exactly when it started to fall over and when Preston were getting the better of us. I do feel like Chris, when Chris touched on it earlier about uh, we just seem to not pick up the second balls as much anymore. And I think that's testament to Brown, McCann, and and I thought Brent Whiteman was actually pretty good in the centre in the in the centre there. And they were they were sort of nipping balls away from us. And I think that when that started to happen, a lot of our passing in the further up the pitch just wasn't particularly good enough. It wasn't zippy enough. There was trying a lot of flicks and tricks and weren't coming off. Therefore, we weren't able to dominate possession as much as we usually do to create more opportunities further forward. I think that is partly down to Preston, but I think it was it was more our doing as well. The game just started to slip away from us and we weren't able to sort of dominate the opposition as, as well as we could be. Yeah, Dan, um, Peter's article that I mentioned earlier um, has some stats that really just bear out what a uh, like at below par performance this was um, for the Whites. Fulham won only 43 of their 109 duels, made only 12 tackles compared to Preston's 27. And in the second half, Fulham's passing accuracy was 69.5%, uh, below their average of 77.3%. And that was the second lowest return of the campaign. Um, those really just illustrate what we were seeing in front of our eyes that this was just such a below par performance yes Preston were rallied and it was a it was a cold windy day and I imagine it was difficult plus the illness but this was just a Fulham so far below their best yeah and I think it sort of it it accelerates itself and it, it worsens itself as the game goes on because things like jewels are incredibly tiring you know, when, you, when you're going in for aerial challenges, when you're battling in what turned into quite a physical game, uh, especially when sort of decisions started getting contentious, the game got quite bitty and that gets very tiring. And when you've already got a tiring squad and a tiring 11, it, it makes it harder. But I, I think one of my big takeaways, and I was doing the halftime and full-time thoughts yesterday, is that I think we do need a little bit of perspective on this. I, what I saw out there uh, and... I've seen some a couple of games this season where we've been pretty poor and it's been very frustrating. But I, I feel like I might have been slightly in the minority yesterday where I was just trying, I was just hoping we'd get over the line with a point because we looked dead out on our feet. And I think it was just a case of getting through that game, get ourselves a six-day break and we'll use that to recuperate because I don't think the players were intentionally playing poor passes. I don't think they were intentionally losing jewels. They just didn't physically have it in them to be better. 
And I think there is some perspective required there because this was a bad performance, yes. And I'd say it's probably, in terms of what happened on the pitch, probably our worst performance of the season. But it wasn't through lack of effort. I just don't think we had the effort in us to do any better. Chris, would you agree? No, absolutely. And and if I could add a couple of uh, stats to the ones you mentioned from Peter earlier. I mean, we talked about the first half hour and Fulham's first half hour was pretty good. But after that, after the 28th minute, Fulham only had two attempts at goal with 0.1 XG between them across the whole game. They've only had nine shots, which is the lowest of the season. So it's definitely true that, you know, it's, it's one of the weakest performance of the season. And there's really this cliff edge after half an hour. And I think that really points... You know, to the to the point that Dan's making about the the fitness and the energy, I do, I just think that you know we can talk about the tactics and commitment and the energy of the team, but really I think this is about the virus and the illness and the lack of preparation time from Wednesday and just running out of steam. I actually think from a tactical standpoint, it it was a bit of a weird game because there didn't actually seem to be much going on from either team. It just descended into a little bit of chaos in the second half, where Preston, as soon as they won the ball, pretty much were looking to hit Emil Reese. As, as frequently as possible. And we won when we won the ball back, I don't think we quite knew whether we were going to try and hit them on the counter-attack or try and hold on to the ball and just run down the clock. And it turned into quite... It was a weird second half, I thought. Yeah. And Fulham... I did a tweet like yesterday saying that I think Fulham did enough for the win. And lots of people took that to mean that I thought we deserved to win. And I was like, no, 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 I don't think Fulham deserved to win. I'm just saying that barring a terrible referee call, which I'm going to come on to next, for, I think Fulham win that 1-0, win it really ugly. And we're all here on the podcast, four points clear of Bournemouth and saying, oh, what a great result yesterday was. That's the sign of um, champions. When you go up, don't play your best and still hold on to a 1-0. And it's a referee decision that undid that in the end, because I don't think that Preston really had too many chances. Um, Farrell, let's come on to the referee call. Not actually, there is another referee call, which was Anthony Robertson's challenge on Barkhausen, which I'll I'll ask you about in a second. But the goal, um, I found this infuriating as as we all did I, I saw a few fans saying like oh how could the referee have been expected to see it but there's potentially four infringements in there isn't there there's the push on Marit road out which would have been soft but still a bit of a push there's the handball by reese um the fact that reese is offside and then the kind of shoulder upper arm from ched evans to actually put the ball in the net i find it remarkable that one of those four infringements wasn't seen <laughs> I think individually, I can just about see where people are coming from that the referee and the assistants didn't spot anything. They're all quite subtle, but I think because they all come together, they all add up to like an outrageous decision. I think what I think what gets a lot of the fans goats up, and especially me, is the fact that we tune in to watch experts talk about the game and they talk about how each one of those infringements, do they actually warrant disallowing the goal when they're all clear infringements on the game and it's it's quite ridiculous that we are in the situation that we tune into sky sports and and they they sort of come come back and say well let's just discuss it and could it be could it be given could it not be given when quite clearly it shouldn't have stood in any sort of situation i think also to come back onto a full perspective i don't think it's very good defending at all you can see tossin doesn't seem to be anywhere near he sort of like looks around to see where Chad Evans is, but 
he doesn't sort of get back far enough. He sort of just assumes that maybe Merritt Brodett's going to get there and then immediately turns around and shouts as if someone else should have been there as well. And the fact that he, you know, Jed Evans has actually got all that time and space two yards away from the goal line to actually head it. I think the ball from Seri for the first one's amazing, but I don't think the the cross from Preston was particularly good and should have been defended a lot better. Um, Dan, your thoughts on the uh, on the goal? Um, you said on Twitter, you did the full-time thoughts, as you mentioned, you said uh, farcical refereeing. Um, was that a bit spur of the moment or do you still stand by that? No, I, I, my comment on the refereeing actually was as the, on the game as a whole, particularly the second half. In fairness, that's most of the game that I saw was the second half. Um, <laughs> but I just thought, particularly from a, a Premier League and European competition level referee in Chris Kavanagh, you know, he's used to managing, let's be honest, bigger games than Preston against Fulham. And the fact that he seemed to have no control over what was going on in the pitch in that second half, I thought was awful. And I can forgive him, I think, for the handballs because there's a, there's a lot of players in the box at that point and it's sort of difficult to see. And it's not his fault that his linesman's not seen the offside. But then when you also add in Marek being fouled, and I think if Marek isn't being fouled, nothing happens there because he would have come out and claimed that cross. That's landed, what, three yards out from goal when it's hit someone, when it's hit um, Ched Evans. If if Marek isn't being fouled, he just comes and claims that. And so I think when you add them all together, and it was one from the away end that we could just see, it just looked wrong. You just, some goals, they go in and they just look like something wasn't right there. Mm. And you can tell by the Fulham player reactions. Um, I just thought overall, it was a really, really poor refereeing performance. It descended into chaos. And you mentioned the Robinson challenge. I don't want to get ahead if you've got other questions about it, but I thought, I thought people really overreacted on that. I thought it was a little bit of a heavy challenge, but that was it at best. I thought it was, it was fine. Um, he's gone in a little bit heavy. His momentum's taken him through the player, but I don't see, I, I saw some people saying that we got away with one there. I really don't think we did. I think actually he actually got that decision pretty right. And it was one of the few in that second half. Um, Chris, your, your thoughts on all of the uh, d- above uh, talking points regarding the referee? It's funny, isn't it? Because like throughout the entire game, almost all the sort of talking points are concentrated into this like 0.25 second passage of passage of play. But um, I guess my thoughts, I, I thought the corner was actually fairly decent that came in. It had a sort of looping trajectory that kind of took Tosin out of it. I think his problem was the, the angle it came in meant that he couldn't really get a, a head on it. I think uh, Mitro doesn't cover himself in glory on this. I think he was marking Ched Evans and he neither impedes his run to the ball or attacks the ball itself. But I think that sort of speaks to his overall uh, performance on the day. And then, yeah, I guess the, the final thing is like, when was the last time you've seen a goal that's both assisted and scored by the hand. I can't recall any other examples of that in, in football. So it's, it's quite stunning that that goal has been given. Yeah. I mean, it is remarkable. And I was watching, you know, on a telly from a, from a TV that was reasonably far away from me. And as you say, Dan, I, you just, you just know when a goal doesn't look right. You know, I just was like, that's surely hit hands. I don't know. I, I couldn't be a hundred percent sure in the moment, but if, if you're in the penalty box, I can't quite see how him and an assistant can't see that the offside well, it is a hundred percent an offside. Again, you can maybe see how an assistant doesn't see that. It's tight. It's on the line. There's a hundred bodies and maybe individually you can forgive 
a decision. Like if it had just been the offside or if it had just been a handball or if it had just been the push on Marit Rodak, you'd go like, well, you know, not clear and obvious. But when the four are added together, then it, it does just kind of compound it into into a crazy decision. Um, Chris, did you think it was lucky on Robinson to, to stay on the pitch on Barkhausen? So I think I got a slightly different view to the others on this in that I thought it was a strong yellow card. And if it had been against us, I think I would have been calling for a red on that. And really that comes down to the, the sort of idea of excessive force. You know, I think that's the criteria for, for a red card. And I think Robinson would do well to put more force into a tackle than he did. He was running at full pace. He's pretty much gone straight into the legs. He's got the ball first, but I don't think that's relevant in these these situations. So yeah, I was a bit relieved when it was was yellow. Can I just have a final point on the, the refereeing thing, Sammy? Yeah. So I, I don't want to bang on too much about it, the refereeing, but I think it might be worth a discussion just putting out there that is this an issue that you get when you have a referee dropping down into the championship who's used to dealing with VAR, where in the premiership, Chris Kavanagh doesn't have to make a decision for that goal. Mm. Because if he's not 100% sure what's happened, VAR will help him out. And you see this a lot with Premier League referees now is that they wait to make their decisions and they wait to get feedback. And I just wonder if that starts to, if when you drop down into a division where you don't have VAR, if that has an effect on how you referee a game. No, that's very, very interesting. And obviously I was thinking about, you know, at what point could VAR ever reasonably get to the championship? But already the Premier League, I think it's difficult when they've got maybe three or four 3pm kickoffs happening at one time from their centralised location in the way they do it. The, the logistics of even trying to get it to the championship would be enormous if they wanted to go down the same road as the Premier League. But there has to be a, a way forward of simplified VAR, I feel like, where it's like, can it be taken by a fourth official at the ground where we can just call out ridiculously obvious things? Like when just to save the, the, the gaffes that you see when there's a handball on the line like that, can some sort of VAR be brought in for that? And it has to be consistent across all the games. So you, you have to have the same amount of cameras. Every game has to be fully equal. I appreciate that this is something that will take several years to filter down. And I, I don't doubt that in three or four years, the championship will get some kind of VAR, but it's it's a long way off. But there, there's certainly a few hurdles. Um, Farrell, it's, it's as you were in terms of the table, West Brom drew nil-nil with Forrest on Friday night. They look absolutely atrocious right now. And I would argue at the moment are not the most likely um, challengers from the uh, from the playoff teams at the moment, the way they're playing. And then Bournemouth threw away a two-goal lead um, into the final five minutes. They lose Jefferson Lerma for the game against us as well because he got a red card. So in terms of the other results, couldn't have gone any better really. And it's uh, it saved Fulham uh, given a, a, a tough week, you know, in the circumstances understandable results because of the illnesses um but Fulham have got away with one a little bit haven't they yeah I mean you're quite right in saying that we're going into a tough week and we came into this tough week uh second and we're ending the tough week top of the table so like how we've managed to get through that you know and be top of the table I think you've got to say wow that's actually this has gone remarkably well um and you know, it's kind of like as you were and everything. And I, I, you know, if you looked at Fulham's results, it would have been very unlikely that we would be in the situation that we are still, 
you know, and cons- a considerable margin from the playoff spot. So I think it's, I think it's great. I think, you know, we've, we've come, we've come through it. Um, we haven't picked up any more injuries as well, which is quite good. Um, and I think it's well documented. We can talk about the bot. Bournemouth game later is quite well documented. They're going through a bit of a rough patch with their squad with quite a lot of injuries and, and whatnot. So, you know, it's, you know, I think that when we go into Friday now, um, I think both teams would, would take a draw considering how much of a rough patch it has been for both Fulham and Bournemouth as well. Um, but I don't think that when it comes down to it, the dressing rooms will be like that before the game. They're going to go be going hell for leather to try and get the advantage on the opposition. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be a brilliant, brilliant game. Um, it reminds me of the situation in the table two years ago when we were the team in kind of third, fourth, alongside Brentford and West Brom and Leeds were kind of uh, top of the tree. And it felt like Leeds and West Brom kept giving opportunities for the other teams to, to step in and particularly us and get a march on them. And they would quite regularly, you know, go two or three without a win. And almost at the same time, Fulham would also go on a poor run and the, and the nine, 10 point gap that opened up in October and November just never got closed. And you feel like in terms of West Brom and the chasing pack that if they can't, get the results and, and take advantage of the likes of when Fulham and Bournemouth do go on their blips, which will happen throughout the season, then, you know, hopefully um, that continues and, and promotion will get more and more inevitable as, as the season goes on. But um, yeah, fortunate really that Fulham's still top of the league and uh, we will discuss that Bournemouth game in a little bit. We've also got a load of your questions, so we're going to come on to those next. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy James here, and I'm joined by Farrell Monk. Hello. Dan Cook. Hi, Sammy. And Chris Frank. Hello. Right, let's get on to some questions. There's been uh, a few filtering through as the day goes on. Uh, Lee Warner asks, why does Robinson look so unnatural when he's on the ball? Is it something that can be coached out of him? Also, his crossing hasn't improved since he's been at the club. Is it time for Brian to come back in? I would be lying if I said I am not getting incredibly frustrated with some of Robinson's performances. 
I think I can see why he's so highly rated. His athleticism is undeniable. I feel like he does make quite intelligent moves and, and runs sometimes, but just that final technical ability can be so infuriating. Final passes, decision-making, really, really seem to be letting him down. I thought he'd maybe got over that. Towards the start of the season, he was chipping in with a few assists and a goal or two. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the real Anthony Robinson, but he seems to have really regressed Chris in the past maybe three or four weeks. And and given the fact that Joe Bryan does seem to be fit again, I find it surprising that Marcus Silva hasn't decided to to give Joe Bryan a bit more of a run out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in terms of his, you know, looking unnatural with the ball, he's got this quite sort of upright running style, hasn't he, with the highest centre of gravity. So he doesn't doesn't look like he can change direction like a Cabano or um, and maybe that's part of it. But yeah, he's, there's something about the, the sort of return from the crosses, which isn't quite right. I mean, as you say, he's got a, I think he's got a goal and two assists, which is more or less the same as we've got from the other side of the pitch as well. But yeah, the, there's a lot of balls that go into the box where you think that's, a, that's really a wasted opportunity. The only thing I can think that um, is keeping him you know, ahead of Joe Bryan in that respect is the recovery pace that he has because he's working with Tim Ream, who, as we saw you know, this weekend, doesn't always have the most pace. He got beaten a few times this weekend. And the, the pace that Robinson, Robinson has, that Tosin has, really does get us out of a hole quite often and that may be why why he's still there um farrell what was your thoughts on on anthony robinson um the fact that he has joe bryan down his neck and he's such a a fan favorite also doesn't help because i think that similar to the gazaniga and rodak situation you do have a certain section of the fan base that would just like joe bryan because he's a good guy and he scored um important goals for us. It's one of those, it feels again, inevitable that maybe Joe Bryan will just eventually get his place due to to fan pressure or that certain fans will be not happy to see Robinson not doing well, but also um, they will have their preferences kind of deeply ingrained. Maybe there's something in the fan base that's like when you score a legendary goal for the club, you automatically get a place like Dennis Adoy. And that's why he's getting the nod over Kenny Tete. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but I don't quite I don't I don't quite buy into the whole Anthony Robinson not not being that good. I think he's very capable and I think he's got a lot of quality. And yes, it you know some of his um some of his moments can be made up by his athleticism, but we've got that athleticism in the team and we should use it as much as possible. And I think you know when we do play such a high intensity game quite a lot of the time, we need we need players like that. But yeah, Joe Bryan certainly has that quality. There must be something going on that why he's not, you know, not in the squad or anything like that. But I'm quite happy with Anthony Robinson is perhaps I do. I do agree that his crossing isn't amazing, but maybe it's maybe we're just comparing it to Joe Bryan because we know his ability uh, from wide positions as well. I mean, it could be down to the fact that, you know, he has played a lot of games. He's been flying around. This is you know, a period in his career probably where he's under the most strain, um, you know, with with 
playing uh, week in, week out for Fulham, but also playing week in, you know, a, a, a lot of opportunities for the United States as well as. So it's going to be new for him and a new experience as well. Perhaps he needs a rest. And I'm saying that because the last time I said that a left-sided player should should need a rest after an intense amount of games was, was just before Ryan Sessegnon scored a hat-trick. Uh, well, almost got a hat trick away at Newcastle United, so I hope that comes true again for his next game. <laughs> I mean, Dan, that one thing about Anthony Robinson is that um, were we lucky enough to go up? I always have to caveat that. That I do think that Robinson offers a lot us a lot in the Premier League, where pace and power is so important. And if we have to have one eye on the future. I don't think that Joe Bryan is a, is a Premier League left back, but weirdly, I actually think Anthony Robinson is, particularly in a side that's going to be doing a lot of defending, having to you know defend against you know ridiculously fast right wingers every week. I guess that's where Anthony Robinson comes into a play. Maybe he's struggling in a side that actually is expected to dominate the ball a lot more. I will caveat this caveat this massively by I'm not comparing the two, but if you take someone like Carl Walker, for example. I was going to mention him. I think he is someone who naturally does not have the best positioning as a player. However, you wouldn't say that he's a bad defender because he has that ability to make up for his poor positioning with his speed. And I think this is one thing that Anthony Robinson offers massively, not necessarily just bad positioning, but because we use attacking fullbacks, he is often caught high up the pitch, but he, as Chris mentioned, that recovery sprints that he has are very, very important. And I agree. I don't think that Joe Bryan is necessarily a Premier League left back when you put him in a team that may not be dominating the ball because Joe Bryan's qualities are all in the opposition's half of the pitch. I think defensively, we've seen a lot of questions around Joe and I love him, but in terms of Premier League quality, I don't think he's there defensively. Whereas, yeah, I think, and we saw it with Anthony Robinson, he made that left-back spot his own last season. And yes, we've got issues with his crossing, but first and foremost, I think from a left-back and from, from your defenders, especially in the Premier League, you need to be keeping the ball out of the net. And so I, I agree. For me, it's not always the crossing. It's a little bit the passing as well. There seems to be a lot of loose passes from Anthony lately. And, and Farrell's right. He's done. Had played a lot of football. He's been going to the US. He's been playing international games and sometimes three international games in a in an international break. Whilst the rest of the squad, you know, gets to mulch around uh, Motspur Park, Anthony's putting in a hell of a lot of of miles. I mean, I I don't know if I can ever forgive Anthony for messing up the seven v one against Cardiff a few weeks ago. <laughs> I, I on I. I nearly left the ground at that point. I was just so angry. <laughs> it was actually embarrassing how many players that we had just queuing up, ready to score, and he somehow found the Cardiff player. But fingers crossed that turns around. Thank you very much for your question, Lee, on that one. Um, Josh says, is there a lack of leadership within the Fulham squad? Badly needed a cool head out there to calm things down, but instead got caught up with Preston's wind-ups. Kenny cops some stick for his leadership style, but we badly missed him ticking over possession in the second half what do you think on that one Chris so it's an interesting question I think in terms of the leaders we had on the pitch obviously we've got Tim Ream out there and and Mitrovic both of whom I see as as strong leaders and actually in the instance with uh, Anthony Robinson and the the cards uh, debate when everyone was surrounding the referee it was actually Tim Ream that went in there and he was cooling heads he was talking to the referee he was calming the situation down and that was a you know a good moment of leadership on the on the pitch I think 
But certainly the way the game went in the second half, we did need someone to get hold of the ball and get just get the passes ticking over, keep it for a bit and just get, you know, give the defence a bit of a breather from the, the, the waves of Preston attacks. So I think, you know, Kearney would have been effective out there if he'd been an option. But I, d- I don't see there being a lack of leadership in, in that side that was out there uh, this weekend. No, I think there's a difference between leadership and then a cool head who can keep possession. I think, yes, maybe they they blend into each other a little bit. But I, I totally agree with Josh that Kearney would have been really useful yesterday because I think he's such a great player when you're in the lead trying to just, you know, calm things down. He just really has kind of a full 360 vision of where people are on the pitch and can just play the easy pass that gets us out of a bit of pressure. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's Kearney's leadership that is that skill. I think that's his passing ability and his and his kind of footballing knowledge really. Um Dan, Carlino asks, though unbeaten in eight, would a change in formation, maybe 3-5-2, be a better option than taking Knockart off the bench? So I, I saw this question and my first thought was no. And this may come down to my tactical preferences. However, I think we've seen it a couple of times this season and you look at, at Blackpool, for example, when we did effectively go two up top. And the issue whenever you go two up top is how do you progress the ball from back to front if it's not going to be a long-hoofed ball? And because if you drop someone out of midfield or if you go three at the back, which we're not used to playing, and I don't necessarily think we have the personnel, it it then becomes a case of you start forcing yourself long. And whilst we can all say negative things about long ball football, and I personally hate it, it's a skill in itself. And you look at teams who are good at playing it and they have worked on it and they know how to do it. And we don't. How many times have we seen Fulham go long towards the end of the game seeking a goal? And that's when we come on the podcast after the game saying, I don't think we, we didn't look like we we're going to score because we never managed to create anything when we're just lumping hopeless balls forward. So I think whilst it can look not necessarily that aggressive a substitution because it's not a striker coming on when you need a goal, bringing on a player who might just help connect the midfield to your lone striker can be very effective. And Anthony Knockup very nearly did it. And I was a little bit disappointed with him because it was an under-hit pass. But there was a moment towards the end of the game when he had the opportunity to feed Harry Wilson through and he just under-hit the pass slightly. But that's the sort of thing that you get when you add on a link between back to front as opposed to just forcing yourself long all the time. Yeah, 100%. Um, Thank you for that, Dan. And final question, uh, we'll go to Farrell and it's from uh, Graham Sideburns who says, do we need to sign another goal-scoring threat in January? If Mitro is not playing due to injury or suspension, do we think that Muniz is ready to step up and fill his shoes or do we bring someone else in, possibly hurting the young Brazilian's confidence by doing so? Um, it's such an easy solution uh, to a problem I don't think we have and with and that's necessarily with goal scoring um, and it's possibly only come up because of the game uh, the other night because obviously Mitrovic didn't start he wasn't he wasn't available and we go and draw a game nil nil and we didn't look like that we were going to score that night but you know we created a lot of chances that night. Um, we hit the post a couple of, hit the woodwork a couple of times. Uh, Muniz almost scores goal of the decade. Um, and yeah, we, you know, uh, 
on the podcast the other after that game, like they talked about, you know, you guys talked about Muniz and, you know, he, he hasn't had a lot of game time, but you can see the quality is there. And uh, I have every faith that if, unfortunately, Mitrovic gets injured, that Muniz can, can step in. And of course, we've got other players like Jay Stansfield is coming back from injury as well. And we have got goal scorers throughout the team. And I've got every faith that we'll be able to do that. If Messi decides that he doesn't want to sit on the bench at PSG anymore, he's more than welcome to come come to Fulham in, instead. Uh, Sammy, I remember your article balling a lot of piss <laughs> throughout the football world, trying to convince Messi to come to Fulham. Yeah, still valid, still valid reasons. But um, I, 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 I think the squad has got enough quality at the moment. I don't know who's who. Uh, the powers that be are, are looking at in, in January. You know, the conversation might have changed if we're twenty points clear come January first. There's there's more than enough quality in in this squad to 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 see us over the line. Really, I don't think the goal scorer is is the way that we should be looking anyway. No, indeed. Um, there was a transfer rumor yesterday, Dan, which was um, uh, we don't exactly know how much there is to it, but it was by um, it seemed fairly reputable that Fulham lining up an 18 million transfer bid for Angelo Fulgini, uh, who plays for Angers. He's kind of a number ten. Uh, big price tag, but of course, Fulham probably would be able to afford that given the fee that is likely to come in for Frank Zambo and Gisa from Napoli. Um, I remember I saw that you say in the group that you'd done a bit of digging on him. Um, what did you What did you find? Yeah, uh, I found because I, I, people, the first reaction is, is when you see a player, some people go and they, they check what they've done this season and they saw that he'd scored two goals and assisted assisted two and that doesn't sound particularly impressive and I dug into his numbers a little bit and when it comes to goal scoring and setting up goals he is not the most prolific however one of the things that he's fantastic at uh, especially and this is compared to the top five leagues in Europe is progressing the ball and that is breaking lines getting the ball and and getting it in between the the defence and the midfield opposition midfield, that's both with passes and dribbles. He sounds like a player who I would say not too dissimilar uh, in in style in the sense of mm-hmm. a number 10 like Fabio Carvalho who able's to drop deep and then break those lines, uh, which I think is is always a useful player to have. Whether it means that news on Fabio Carvalho is not looking great, that remains to be seen. Because if we're looking for a 10 when we've got Fabio and Kearney, who is capable of playing there, amongst others, we shall see. But one to look out for, uh, and I would encourage people to uh, keep an eye out for him playing for Angers. Well, I know that Jack has waxed lyrical many a times about Angers on the uh, on the Ranks podcast this year. Uh, so they're a very, very exciting team. So uh, anyone playing for them uh, sounds like he could be a good option for us. But it's all very much speculation uh, at this time. It's still November and I don't think we're going to be signing any £18 million players in January. But you know what? Nice to dabble in a little bit of transfer talk, isn't it? After the break, we're going to discuss Bournemouth. <laughs> Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Farrell, Dan and Chris. And we're going to briefly look ahead to Bournemouth on Friday. Uh, there'll be a much more detailed preview uh, with myself, Peter and Jack in the Thursday club. Uh, obviously, uh, it's the Rutzler derby, uh, old old club versus the new club. Um, so we'll have all of his analysis on the game. Um, but Chris, it's a fascinating matchup. There's so many 
talking points to it. Not only is it first versus second in the league, there's everything that's happened in the last few weeks with us taking Bournemouth's place at the top of the table and then throwing away points. Um, and of course, there is the Scott Parker narrative. Back at Craven Cottage, um, it's just one of those games that any Fulham fan worth their salt is going to want to be at because there's just so many great storylines. And if Fulham could win it, it would be a memorable, memorable night. Yeah, no, it's going to be a, a really exciting game. And I think uh, Scott Parker's probably in for a fairly hostile reception when he when he comes back to the cottage because of the way in which he left the club. Um, I mean, you know, obviously the 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 race between the two teams was um, is very much in the balance, and we were very pleased to see uh, Bournemouth lose their two goal lead the other day. Um, and I just thought it was worth sort of calling back to one of the sort of statistics I think you guys have talked about before when it comes to Scott Parker and he, and the way in which he goes about managing leads, which obviously he just lost one uh, against Coventry on Saturday. So Scott Parker, as we all know, likes to switch to sort of five at the back to try and hold on to a lead towards the end of the to, towards the end of a match. And I just thought it was interesting to note that um, you know we used to talk about how he would do that at Fulham. And he was successful every single time he did that at Fulham. Every time he brought on a defender to go five at the back, we always held on to that result. And it's been the same at Bournemouth until now. So he's done it, I think, seven or eight times for Bournemouth. And again, held on to the lead every time. So this weekend was the first time that run has been broken in 25 attempts. And so it'd be interesting to see, you know, if Bournemouth do get a lead, will we see the same sort of tactic from Scott Parker? Will we see Fulham being able to break that down? And um, yeah, bring the bring the score back towards the end. So you're saying that because obviously Scott Parker did lose a couple of leads at Fulham, and I think he lost one early this season um, against Blackpool. But you're saying in the 25 times that he's brought on a defender to hold on to the lead, that's the first time he's actually lost he's lost one. Yes, in fact, he'd only ever conceded one goal doing that before this weekend, which was the Brentford consolation at Wembley. That was the only time Scott Parker had conceded a goal after go, after switching to five at the back to defend a lead. And then this weekend, he conceded two, lost a two-goal lead, lost two points. So that uh, record is well and truly broken. And uh, yeah. yeah, long may that continue. No, fantastic. Fantastic stat there, Chris. Uh, unbeatable, that one there. Um, Farrell... Do you think that Scott Parker deserves a bad reception on Friday? Uh, we have discussed this a little bit before. Um, I believe you were there when we did. <sighs> part of me thinks he doesn't deserve it, but also part of me just thinks it's football. He left in a really shitty manner and that's what football's about. It's about, you know, good guys and bad guys. It's not much deeper than that. <laughs> I mean, for the narrative, I want to say... Yeah, let's create as much drama as possible. Um, I've, you know, I've been quite open on the podcast a lot about how much of a fan I was of Scott Parker. You know, his brand of football wasn't, you know, always uh, pleasant and exciting. But considering the tools at his disposal and everything, I think he did overall a very good job for us. Um, but I think that his departure could have definitely been better managed. Um, I think someone said on the, someone said before he before he he left at the end of last season that uh, he won the PR war, but I don't think he's won any PR wars uh, in the in the summer um, afterwards. Um, does he deserve a bad reception? Probably not. Will he get a bad reception? He absolutely he will be. 
Um, you know, I think that manner of how he left and everything like that. But yeah, you're right in saying it's it's football. People people leave and decide to go to other clubs all all the time. It's just you know, it does hurt a little bit that it was for the first time in what seems like a, a long, long time, a, a manager left of their own accord, um, which I probably think is actually Roy Hodgson, I want to say, was the last manager that left w- without being sacked. Uh, am I right in saying? Don't think you're wrong. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, man, I suppose Mark, Mark Hughes. Hughes. Mark Hughes kind Mark of Hughes. left. He just didn't sign um, a new contract because he was only on a one-year contract to start off with and just resigned I think which was definitely a, a blessing I mean I don't think Mark Hughes was popular before he left and he certainly wasn't popular after he left and he's uh, I'm so glad that he's been found out to be an absolute it, fraud there was a lot of similarity actually when you think about the way that Mark Hughes departed and the way that Scott Parker departed where they didn't necessarily do a terrible job when they were at Fulham and people would kind of warm to them but actually everyone was happy with the outcome in the moment when you know people were happy with the upgrade perceived upgrade of of Mark Hughes to Martin Yole Mark Hughes was happy to go to QPR obviously for both parties it didn't end well but actually there's a lot of similarity there um Dan just a quick word on Lerma being suspended for Bournemouth that feels like a massive boost for us um he got sent off yesterday he was last man so I think he's just suspended for the one game uh, in terms of the makeup of the midfield, it always felt like he was going to have a massive impact on it. And uh, he would have been the one trying to kind of win that midfield battle with, with Seri and Reed, who you imagine will start on Friday. It feels like a huge, huge advantage for us that he's not going to be there. It definitely is. And he's um, Bournemouth fans have been very happy with his performance this season. And it's always a great barometer of anything from another club. When you see their fan reactions, to what's happened and the one thing that Bournemouth fans were saying in the moment when the red card happened wasn't all this could be a hairy last 15 minutes they were saying brilliant now we don't have him for Fulham that's an issue and so clearly it's it's a huge plus for us I think what we've got on Friday and I'm really excited for it is I think it's going to be a really interesting game in general you know you look at what Bournemouth have done this season and as you would expect from a Scott Parker side in the championship they've tended to dominate possession uh, and what we would then see from from us and what Marco Silva has done, like we did against Swansea, who similarly like to have a lot of the ball, is that we'll look to just try and murder them on the counter-attack. But we also know that Scott Parker has a propensity for pragmatism. He likes to try and uh, dig in sometimes, especially in big games, and may try and put the onus on us to try and dictate the game. But I think with Lerma out, and I think actually even a bigger one, um, and I think which has coincided really with their little blip, is the fact that it seems that Jordan Zamora is probably still going to be out injured, the left back, who has created so many chances for them with his aggressive runs from left back. And when you look at Gary Cahill, may or may not be fit. I think this is a really, really good chance for us to try and, and get three points. This is a a weakened Bournemouth side going through a bad run. If we can use these six days to recover from the bug and from the three game week, I think it's a great opportunity to uh, make it a four point lead up top. 
Oh, which would be a massive psychological boost and, and one for us really to to lord over Bournemouth. And their fixtures after this game as well aren't particularly pretty. They face Blackburn, who are flying. Ever since we thumped them 7-0, it seems to really kick them into gear. Um, they're in danger of um, going into third if West Brom continue to, to falter. And then a trip up to, to Middlesbrough, um, which is obviously never easy anyway. And uh, with Chris Wilder, they're starting to click into gear as well. It would be a huge, huge boost for for Fulham and Chris does there is there any psychological edge of Fulham being top of the table going into this I feel that if Bournemouth had come into this game top and let's say it was a couple of points clear of Fulham with Parker's pragmatism a draw would have been an acceptable, a very acceptable result for Parker that he could have been happy with because he'd have kept Fulham at arm's length with them being below us in the table, draws now not quite the results that that he would really need. It wouldn't be so easy to wash that down with with the players or with the fans. Um, is there any psychological boost in Fulham being top going into this, or do you think ultimately we're only twenty games into the season and neither coach is going to massively care about the table? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit too early in the season to draw too much of a psychological advantage from a you know a couple of points lead either way. I suspect Bournemouth, you know, coming to the cottage will see a point as a pretty good result, and I think we can expect to see a pragmatic approach from from Scott Parker anyway uh, in this game. And I think that's probably the the same either way, depending who's you know slightly on on top uh, in this one. Yeah, indeed. Well, hopefully Fulham can get the uh, the three points on Friday. It's going to be a massive game. And as I mentioned earlier, there'll be a full Bournemouth preview on this week's Thursday Club with myself, Jack and Peter. Final thing before we go is to name the podcast. Farrell, what would you like to go with? And uh, if you could avoid calling it Tyking the Piss this time, uh, <laughs> I'd be very grateful. Are you sure you don't want me to call it officials giving handjobs? Um, yeah, I... <sighs> You don't have to send the emails to The Athletic with the podcast name. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're reflecting back on Preston before I actually pick, choose out my uh, my three-word review before I'm banned from the podcast for a while. Just a couple of weird moments from the Preston announcer. The first one being, and I don't think I've ever seen this before, but when Tim Ream scores the, the opener, he, the announcer calls him their captain, Tim Ream, which I don't think I've ever, I've ever heard uh, an opposition announcer do that before. Yes. And the other one is, and this really has lived in my head ever since yesterday, was when Seri got substituted. He was called John Michael Seri, which is just, I don't know whether they did that on purpose or anything like that, but it's just a, it's just a, a couple of weird moments from, from their announcer. But, you know, hopefully we don't have to play them. Uh, and obviously for Dan's sake, we, we don't have to go up there anytime soon. Um, but just to finish off, uh, I'm going to choose Cabana Rama's excellent Preston Supermare. Yeah, a very, very good three-word review. I noticed as well the... Um, he sounded weirdly excited when Tim Ream scored. It was like, <laughs> goal scorer for Fulham number 13, their captain, Tim Ream. And you're like, what? <laughs> I suppose like... We all know the rules with football announcers. You're supposed to be super deadpan. Ivan Berry does it perfectly. He sounds like he's honestly about to slash his wrists when the opposition score. That is what we want from our announcers. It is goal number nine, Dominic Solanke. That's what we need. Like, <laughs> I mean, kind of weirdly enjoyable. I didn't hear the John Michael Seri though. That was, uh, that was new on me. That's trying to anglicize a name to the extreme. You know, there's sometimes where... 
you know, people do a Jack Collins and, and pronounce Portuguese names with their uh, proper pronunciations. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not here for that. But to say John Michael Seri instead of John Mikel Seri uh, definitely is taking the biscuit. Anyway, thank you very much for listening today. And thank you very much to my guest, Dan Cook. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Farrell, thank you very much for being on and for your three word views. Thank you very much. And Chris Frank, what a debut. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, did you enjoy your first appearance? Very much so. Yeah, that was really good. Good stuff. Uh, you can uh, you can raise the bat on your way back to the pavilion. <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening today and we'll be back on Thursday. Come on, you likes. Mm-hmm.